Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 130 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. And filling in for Matt this week is Nick Whitaker, our Director of Research and Trading. So Nick, welcome back. Yeah, great to be back. It's good to have you back. I literally, as we were just talking about before we started rolling the cameras, uh, literally dreamt about this podcast last night with you and Jenna uh, and us not being able to get through it, but it must have been on my mind last night when I went to bed. It was on your mind, but uh, good things to come. Yeah, well, excited to have you back. How were uh, the holidays? Yeah, the holidays were great. Uh, got to spend some time with some family and uh, get a little traveling. So what about yourself? It was good. It was good. We were back in Rochester with my family uh, for Christmas. So Kenzie and I went back there last week. We actually had some snow uh, last Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The white Christmas. Oh, well, that's what I was thinking until Christmas Day. It was like 50 degrees and rainy and everything just melted away. So. Yeah. I was in uh, Kansas City for Christmas. It was 70 degrees. Wow. Yeah. I would take that for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we hope everybody enjoyed uh, the holiday season and is getting ready for the new year 2022 here in a few days. Um, And we'll just hop right into it here, Nick. Before we begin, as always, I just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on December 29th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 4.95% for the month and up 27.6% for the year. The Dow up 5.8% for the month and up 19.2% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 3.46% for the month and up 22.45% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 2.2% for the month and up 13.74% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, X United States up 2% for the month and 5.6% for the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.05%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.74%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.55%. So, Nick, I'll turn it over to you to discuss uh, some big news or headlines, current events from the week. Yeah, just uh, just a couple for listeners out there. We're uh, we're not going to focus on on Omicron today. Uh, <laughs> Finally, it's, yeah, it's like that was the topic du jour for the holidays. Oh my at gosh! Least at yeah. my household. I'm sure listeners have heard plenty about that and read read about that. So we're not going to mention that. Uh, but two interesting ones for you. One which is important and might have gone under the radar. Uh, the Biden administration on Wednesday of last week extended a student loan moratorium. That has allowed millions of, of Americans to, uh, to put, put off their debt payments during the, the pandemic. Um, so the, uh, the payments on the federal student loans will, will remain paused through May, May 1st. Uh, so your interest rates will remain at zero um, during, that, during that period. Um, uh, so basically like no, no debt collections, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
so those those were measures that have been in place since early in the pandemic, um, but they were set to expire at the end of the month for listeners. So. Yeah, and that was you know that was something early in the pandemic that the Trump administration had implemented, and then the transition to the Biden administration had implemented and extended it several times. And mm-hmm. I think the Trump administration extended it several times as well. But the interesting thing was that when the Biden administration extended it from this fall to January 31st, they said this is going to be the final extension. So they didn't come out and specifically say this was going to be the final extension because I didn't want, I don't think they wanted to put themselves in a position to have to walk that back and didn't want to do that again. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it is, you know, I understand why they're doing it. You know, um, student loan payments are, are, a large portion of a lot of people's monthly monthly bills um but i guess the question is at what point you know do you start to re-implement this again mm-hmm. because it's going to start to become expected that it's just going to keep getting extended yeah. and i'm not going to have to pay my student loans back and you know i'm not trying to speculate on anything but is this a push to eventually just wipe out student debt so, for yeah. people student debt forgiveness or some, some right type of forgiveness so just something that, to think yeah. about um i understand that there still are you know a lot of job openings out there and we need mm-hmm. to get more people back into the workforce but unemployment has come back down to normal levels um so interesting to see or i guess i would like to know what goes into the administration's thought process in why we need to keep extending i guess yeah sometimes it's uh it's not like the fed where you get where you get a a lot of good answers and uh, you know the 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 beige book and all that right Uh, so we'll see i think uh it's interesting to to think about what they're doing in the context of of omicron and Mm -hmm. i'm sure that you know has that factors into it as well factors into it so you um, said hey you said you weren't going to mention omicron I did it. Sorry, it came up. It came up. (laughs) Um, So the the last uh, major headline we have for you guys is on consumer spending, which we talk a lot about because it's so important and uh, the U.S. consumer is so strong. Uh, So consumer spending rose more slowly in November compared to to October. Spending was up 0.6% in November compared to 1.4% in October. Um, you know, over the next few months, uh, we would love to see inflation to continue to decelerate. Um, uh, so we'll see what happens there, but just to give listeners a little bit more perspective, you know, 0.6% is still pretty strong numbers. I mean, they've been strong for a while now. Right. Um, so this is no kind of like major signal. Um, you know, if anything, the November month, the November month for me with that data, I would almost expect it to kind of tick down a little bit Mm -hmm. because people are probably waiting and, and maybe getting ready to purchase a lot in December for Christmas. So right. Wouldn't shock me if that number pops back up a little bit in December. With, right. With exactly. And I think it goes back to the narrative that people were purchasing like holiday gifts way in advance in the fall. So back in October, when yes. that number, that spending number came in, you know, larger than expected, you know, maybe that was people trying to stock up before, but I really didn't see or hear at least the stuff that I read of like people having any problems getting goods. And I know, especially with Amazon, that wasn't a problem. Yeah. I think that's a shout out to, uh, to the, to the corporates that we, right. uh, we all utilize and, and in part love so much, right. You know, right. your target, your Walmart, your Amazon, um, these, all year long we've been talking about the supply chain and you have these corporates that are aware of that. So they do the, the best they can possibly do to stock up on their inventory. So Amazon in particular was making a lot of extra efforts, um, you know, covering a lot of shipping costs during, mm-hmm. during, um, 
the back half of the year in anticipation of that. So, right. Um, yeah. And I would, you know, I would continue to see these consumer spending numbers come in strong. I mm-hmm. would continue to expect inflation to linger for, you know, more months and into 2022 a little bit. Um, but again, I think the key thing we want to see, Nick, is to start to see these inflation numbers decelerate. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, because if it starts to accelerate, you know, much more than it's at now, then it could begin to cause some issues. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I could I could launch into that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that there uh, yeah, for, for this there. week. Um, so I'll uh, kick it off with the tweets, articles and research from the week. I wanted to highlight a few charts that uh, Brian G shared on this uh, on his uh, blog post on Saturday, December 18th. And um, for those watching on YouTube, Jenna is going to put up these charts um, on the video stream here. So you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, the first of the two charts, Nick, that he put up was a 45 year chart of U.S. growth stocks versus U.S. value stocks. So it's a relative chart. It's comparing the performance of growth versus value. So for for listeners, when the chart goes up, what does that mean? So if the chart is going up from the bottom left to the upper right, that means that growth is outperforming value and vice versa. If the chart's going down, value is outperforming growth. So it is a relative chart. And as you'll see, if you look at this chart, growth just broke out last year out of a 45-year underperformance relative to value. So I just wanted to put that in perspective because in plain English, value has underperformed growth over the past 45 years. And in my opinion, Nick, especially looking at this chart, growth stocks could still have significant room to run here to the upside um, after, you know, obviously they've been outperforming, let's see, for the past decade, um, but just broke out to new highs uh, last year. So, you know, I don't necessarily buy the story that, you know, growth stocks are going to get slaughtered over the next several years uh, just because value has uh, took the reins over at the end of last year. And that's continued into this year a little bit. But, um, you know, in my opinion, I still think that, you know, high quality growth companies still have some room to the upside. Yeah, I agree. We were we were talking about this uh kind of yesterday mm-hmm. when we were talking about corporate earnings and and uh, what the street thinks about whenever you know the, the market cycle starts to to reach the peak and uh, I just think uh, this this growth value trade has gotten a lot of talk uh, but at the end of the day a lot of investors when they see those you know your, your double digit growth rates and, and of revenue and bottom line mm-hmm. I mean it's really attractive right, right? Um, which is why you've had this this outperformance over the past decade yeah exactly and especially you know in the low interest rate environment that we're in now mm-hmm. it's like you know we were talking last night a little bit about you know these large institutional money managers and it's like hey you know if they see some stuff out there in the economy that's not giving them the warm and fuzzies? Mm-hmm. Are they going to put it in a money market fund? Or are they going to hide out in some of these big mega cap liquid names? Because yeah. where else are you going to put the money? Yeah. Um, and I know we're going to talk about interest rates and stuff and what's causing all that here in a little bit. So we'll we'll leave it there. Um, the second chart that Brian posted was um, US versus global stocks. 
And the monthly chart that uh, that Jenna's going to put up on the screen um, is pretty much U.S. stocks relative to international stocks. So again, if the chart is going from the lower left to the upper right or going up, that means that U.S. stocks are outperforming international stocks and vice versa. Um, and in late 2015, U.S. stocks made a 45-year relative breakout to foreign developed stocks. So up until 2015, for the previous 45 years, international was outperforming U.S. stocks. And that just transitioned, right? And if you look at the chart, you'll see for the past decade that U.S. stocks have been outperforming international stocks. But on a long-term basis, again, another chart that looks like it has a lot more room to run to the upside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Matt and I have talked about this a lot on the show before, you know, modern portfolio theory says, hey, we need to have a certain weighting towards international stocks, regardless of the market environment that we're in. And I think if you look at this chart, it's hard to make that argument, right? Um, so there's been a lot of people out there pounding the table that the U.S., you know, uh, corporate companies are way more expensive on a valuation mm -hmm. basis than international companies in emerging markets mm -hmm. um, and, and frontier markets. But people have been saying that for a decade, Nick. And it's yep. like, at what point, you know, yeah, it, it, on a valuation basis, maybe they're right and international stocks are cheap, but that by no means uh, necessary that international has to start outperforming just because they're cheap. They've been cheap for a while relative to right. U.S. stocks. And still underperforming. Right. And still underperforming, yeah. yeah. And that goes back to the, the growth and value thing. It's like, yeah, people might say growth stocks are way overvalued, but they're still outperforming right now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you'll hear some investors make the argument of, you know, with the valuation trade and picking something up that's cheap. But a lot of times it's cheap for a reason. Right. So I would just in encourage retail investors and, and any investor that's that's listening to us, um, you know, whenever someone says, oh, it's a really great buy and it's really cheap and it's a great valuation, you know, it's very possible that the valuation is that way for a reason. And right. just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's going to appreciate to what is maybe considered full value. Right. right? Exactly. Look back um, in the financial crisis, Lehman Brothers. You know, they're analysts. I, I remember seeing a chart, and maybe I can we can dig this up for listeners. Yeah. Seeing a chart that shows the stock price of Lehman when they went through their mm -hmm. fall, and like analysts coming out and pounding the table that Lehman was a buy, super cheap, and then next thing you know, Lehman went bankrupt. Enron, so, right? Enron, <laughs> same story. So, um, so yeah. So I totally agree with you there. A lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of the times, these things are cheap for a reason. So, especially if they're if it's been they've been this cheap for this long. <laughs> hey, I was in the energy space for three years. I saw that with my own eyes. You <laughs> yeah. know, uh, watch. So you know what it's this, like. I know exactly what that's like. You know, the whole of the energy specialist pound on the table saying, "Hey." were incredibly undervalued and it took years and years. I mean, they finally got a bid this year, right. but it took a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time. It's a long time to sit through that. So, yeah. um, want to talk about, uh, interest rates a little bit here, Nicholas. Yeah. So I got a great, uh, a great tweet here from Vic squared on December 12th that shows the 10 year, uh, treasury real yield. Um, and I think Jenna will put this chart up uh, online as well for everyone. 
And what this chart is just showing is, is again, the, te the U.S. 10-year Treasury real yield. And what that is, is that's just your 10-year nominal yield minus your CPI. So what does that mean in layman's terms? So your 10-year Treasury yield is yielding, I believe you said 1.55 yeah. uh, yep. as, as of the close of yesterday. So all that is is that 1.55 minus inflation, mm -hmm. right, which is hovering around 6%. Mm -hmm. So why is this important, right? And and we, we've talked about this a lot. We talk about this a lot with our clients. Um, it's important for every single person, regardless of your finances, regardless of what's going on. So if you leave your money in the bank, right, you're losing your purchasing power, which is the inflation. Mm -hmm. um, if you buy treasury, you know, you're losing a little bit less purchasing power. But having a negative real yield is... Uh, you know, you can look at this chart. It, it's not happened too often to this level. Right. I mean, the negative yields are 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 pretty intense. So the last time it was it was this negative yield was this low was back in like 1980. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of things uh, as to why why the market and why investors focus on this so much because there's so many different variables behind it. You know, you have obviously the consideration of where to put money, right? Because if you have your money in the bank, obviously you're losing your purchasing power at inflation. If you put your money in a treasury yield, yes, it's safe. Yes, you're making 1.6% or rounding up 1.6%, mm -hmm. but you're still losing purchasing power of 5%. Mm -hmm. So your opportunity cost is to go somewhere else, i.e. equity markets mm -hmm. or alternative assets or something like that to try to get more percentage to offset your inflation so that your purchasing power remains strong. Right. Um, you know, the, the simplest way to think about it is, you know, just going back to your personal finances. And if you have 100% of your cash in the bank, you are losing your purchasing power at inflation every single year. Mm -hmm. But if you only have 5% of that, and you have the rest in the equity markets, if the equity markets are, are up 10%, then mm -hmm. your purchasing power has grown and you've grown your money. Now, that's not to say there's not risk, right. because you could put your money in the equity markets and the <laughs> equity markets could sell at 40%. Right. That's the risk you, you run. But uh, it's, it's a really interesting chart when you think about everything that's going on in the market, when you think about rates, when you think about what's the Fed gonna do next year, how corporate earnings are, um, you know, the dynamics of, of where all the money is flowing in the market, how much is in the fixed income, how much is the fixed income market supported by the Fed. I mean, there's so much in this chart, which is why people talk about it. So um, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, 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 I do. And and I don't mean to get on a rant here, but again, this is something that came up when we were, when we were chatting last night. You know, everyone is still looking for when that next long drawn out bear market is going to come. Mm -hmm. And it's been a while. Yeah, it's been, been a while. Bull, bull and market. there might be a really easy, simple answer to this, Nick. Mm -hmm. It's because where else are you going to put the freaking money? Yep. <laughs> Institutional investors that are managing billions of dollars for super high net worth clients are not going to be able to just park their money in T-bills. I'm no. sorry, they wouldn't be able to get away with that. No. With the rates that they're at right now, there's no way. 
There's absolutely no way. So where else are you going to put this money? And I think that's one simple reason Mm -hmm. why we haven't got a long drawn out bear market for a year or two. We had the quick one in, in March of 2020, but it came right back because again, where else is this money going to go? Yeah, exactly. And so to add on to exactly what you said for listeners, think about what we were just saying with equity valuations being so high. Mm-hmm. So when you think about where is this money going to go? Okay, well, you need to com- combat this negative yield of mm-hmm. 5%, which is the largest it's been since what the late or late 70s, early 80s or whatever. Uh, so a long time, right? 40 years. Um, you're going to go to the equities, most likely. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to go within the equity market? Because internationally, there's a lot of global risk going on. Think about mm-hmm. everything that's happened in the past two years. Mm-hmm. What companies look most attractive? U.S. stocks. Yeah. Right. The so, large, liquid, so, big boys. Exactly. So as more money pours into the large, liquid, big boys, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the valuations are going to get pushed, pushed, and pushed. Right. And that's why you hear people talking about not only just the large the large uh, corporates out there, but just the market in general being overvalued. But, you know, this chart, it, a lot of it just comes back to this chart because like you're pointing out, uh, you know, to to a certain degree, it, it may be that simple. And it, it really is that simple when you just think about if you're a big money manager and you're managing billions of dollars for clients, mm-hmm. if they see you parking 20% of your portfolio in T-bills, they're probably going to have something to say about it because yeah. they're, they're losing a lot of purchasing power. Right, exactly. And you you can bring it down to the retail level. Mm -hmm. You know, this is in part, I think, you know, what's had this big boom in cryptocurrency and and Mm -hmm. NFTs and everything, because these people aren't, people aren't stupid. They're not going to park their money in a treasury bond that's paying them a negative real yield. No. Like, it's just not going to happen, you know? So, you know, I don't think we should be surprised by, us not having a long drawn out bear market because of where interest rates are right yeah. now. It wouldn't shock me to to not see a bear market until the the bond market is is normalized. Right. Which will take a while and and will take a long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting an interesting thing to think about, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like what do you think is going to happen when <laughs> when real rates are negative? Of course, valuations are going to go up, especially with the amount of money that's flowing around right now. <laughs> and negative to that degree. I mean, right. I, I urge listeners to look at the chart and it will really kind of hit home for you as to what we're talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that that was an interesting one. Um on to a little bit more positive news, Nick, um, the Santa Claus rally. So we've mentioned this a couple of times before as well on here, but we haven't really dug into the data surrounding the Santa Claus rally. And this comes from a blog post uh, by LPL Research last week that I just wanted to read a little bit from uh, to give listeners a little bit more insight as to what exactly the Santa Claus rally was. Uh, And this was from um, December 23rd, so last week. Um, They say equity strength at this time of the year is widely known as the Santa Claus rally. The real Santa Claus rally is the final five trading days of the year and the first two trading days of the following year. In other words, the official Santa Claus rally is set to be, uh, excuse me, began on Thursday, December 24th, and will end on Tuesday, January 4th. So how likely are these seven trading days to be higher? From 1950 to 2019, 
this seven day trading period has been higher 77.9% of the time. And the average return during that seven year period for the S&P 500 has been 1.33%. So this is the strongest seven day period historically of the year for stocks. Um, Ryan Dietrich says, why are these seven days so strong? Whether optimism over a coming new year, holiday spending, traders on vacation, institutions squaring up their books before the holidays or the holiday spirit. The bottom line is that bulls tend to believe in Santa. They also illustrate, Nick, uh, how the Santa Claus rally has performed over the past 20 years uh, here in this article. So usually these seven days are higher, which leads to strength in January. But what stands out to them is that the times Santa didn't come, January was lower each time. And they yeah. say, now do you believe? Yeah, when, when, you, when you look at uh, this chart... I got to say, I believe in Santa. Yeah, <laughs> I do, too. So so pinpointing these years in 1999, the Santa Claus rally, that seven day period was negative. Uh, January was negative. Uh, in 2004, uh, Santa Claus rally was negative. The following January was negative. Same mm -hmm. for 07, 2014 and 2015. OK, mm -hmm. Um, going back to the mid 1990s, there have only been six times Santa failed to show in December. January was lower five of those six times and the full year had a solid gain only once in 2016. But in 2016, a bin, uh, excuse me, a mini bear market ensued during that year. Considering the bear markets of um, the year 2000 and two, uh, 2008, both took place after one of the rare instances that Santa failed to show uh, that should make believers out of all of us, right? So uh, should this seasonally strong period miss the mark, it could be a warning sign. So... You know, if you look back, like Ryan was pointing out to the bear market with the tech bubble, um, Santa didn't come in that calendar year in 2000, the S&P 500 was down 10%. And even larger in 2008, the market was down 38.5%. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I don't want people to take this as uh, like biblical right. because we all know anything can happen, but there is a lot of data behind this, Nick, which makes this really interesting. And I think the key thing that or the key takeaway from this, at least for me, is when the Santa Claus rally is negative. So Santa doesn't come. That means that the next year could be a little rocky. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to be interested to see how this indicator finishes up. Uh, again, we'll know that at the market close on Tuesday, January 4th. And I believe last night when we were talking, you said that uh, we're positive by like point point four or something four like percent or yeah. something like that. OK, yeah. um, so it could really go either way at this point. But yeah. uh, again, just an interesting indicator that, you know, I've done a little bit more research on uh, that. I've been more acquainted with with Ryan's work that he talks about it a lot. So mm -hmm. thought it'd be interesting to share with people because you're not going to get this stuff from CNBC. No, no. And, and there's there's a lot of misconception around the Santa Claus rally. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't fully understand it mm -hmm. uh, until recently. 
Um, you know, I thought it was more talking about the back half of December, not right. not what it actually is, which is the last five trading days of, of the year and then the following two and into the, the first of the year. Um, but it, it's interesting. I, I tend to, to look at things like this and, and a lot of times I'm like, yeah, well, okay. You know, there's, there's statistics and, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is and it's historical statistics. But when you look at this, it's like, oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's intriguing when you look at this data and it's like, okay, you know, every time Santa hasn't come, January is negative for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Right. It's really interesting. <laughs> so this was, this work was initially done by a gentleman by the name of Yale Hirsch, um, who started the Stock Traders Almanac and his son has since taken over. His name's Jeff Hirsch. Um, and people can subscribe to, to his work if they want. And he has a Tumblr account that he posts about this stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. So he he tracks, obviously, the Santa Claus rally. And he also has another indicator uh, called the, I think it's the, the January indicator. He has three indicators that he calls a trifecta that has historically done a pretty good job of seeing whether the markets are going to be positive or negative the following year. And I have, I think I have a piece on that for next week. So I'll, I'll give listeners a little bit more detail into uh, his trifecta of, you know, predicting, I guess, or forecasting what the next year is going to be in terms of positive, negative return. So that'll be a good one. Yeah. So next week we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, Last but not least, Nick, the financial planning topic of the week. Um, it is the season of giving St. Nicholas. Uh, so you see what I did there? Yeah, I sure like that. that. <laughs> uh, so it only feels right that uh, this week's financial planning topic of the week surrounds charitable giving. Um, and again, uh, we've had a couple of financial planning topics uh, around charitable giving, but I recently read uh, a piece from the Oblivious Investor blog that's written by Mike Piper, um, and he describes charitable giving uh, really better than anyone that I follow or uh, better than I could ever describe it. So uh, he had an interesting article recently that uh, came from one of his readers, uh, emailed him a question on what is the most tax efficient way to give. Um, and I know, you know, today is December 30th, so people need to get their ducks in a row before, uh, before year end if, if they want to take advantage of some of this stuff, but always good to keep in mind uh, for next year as well. So firstly, uh, Mike describes a, a QCD or a qualified charitable distribution. So this is a distribution from a traditional IRA directly to a charitable organization. For example, the check is made out directly to the organization rather than to you. Unlike most distributions from a traditional IRA, QCDs are not taxable as income, and they can be used to satisfy required minimum distributions for a given year. QCDs are limited to $100,000 per year and per spouse if you're married. So this is a really good way, Nick, that if people are over the age of 72 and they have a required minimum distribution from their traditional IRA, if they don't need the money to live and if they were going to take it out and just get taxed on it and have to pay the additional tax dollars Mm -hmm. and they're charitably inclined that they can just give it away to charity and mm-hmm. satisfy their RMD, not pay any taxes on it. And you're doing good in your community. Yep. Every, um, everyone wins except the IRS. Except the tax man, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is most people's goal, right? Yeah, that's the goal. Right? <laughs> so, um, 
To qualify for a charitable distribution, you must be at least 70 and a half. The law that increased the age for RMDs to 72 did not change the age for qualitable, or excuse me, qualified charitable distributions. QCDs also work on a calendar year basis. There is no, I'm doing this in March of 2022, and I want to count it for 2021. Um, similar to the option for contributions to an IRA where you have until your tax filing deadline in 2022 to make prior years, uh, qualified charitable distributions have to be made in the calendar year. Um, next, he goes on to which type of IRA to give from. So giving via qualified charitable distributions from a traditional IRA obviously is much better than donating dollars from a Roth IRA. To you, a dollar in a Roth IRA is worth a dollar of spending, whereas a dollar in a traditional IRA is worth less than a dollar of spending because some part of that dollar would be taxed when you took it out of the account before you could spend it. And that's a really good way to think about that, that. right? Um, And then contra to that, you know, to a taxed exempt nonprofit, a dollar from a traditional IRA is worth a dollar of spending. When you give money to charity via QCD from a traditional IRA, the charity doesn't have to pay tax on that money. So again, win-win situation. So then he asked the question, should you donate via qualified charitable distributions or taxable assets? When choosing between QCDs or donating taxable assets, one advantage of QCDs is that you can take advantage of them while claiming the standard deduction. Donations from taxable assets, including regular checking account dollars, give you an itemized deduction. And that's only valuable to the extent that your itemized deductions in total exceed the standard deduction for the year. And again, just to remind people, Nick, the standard deduction in 2021 is $12,550 for individuals and $25,100 for married couples. But in 2022, the standard deduction is increasing to $12,950 for individuals and $25,900 for married couples. Uh, Conversely, an advantage of donating assets from a taxable account is that if you donate assets that have gone up in value and that you have owned for longer than one year, you get to claim an itemized deduction for the current market value of the asset and you do not have to pay tax on the appreciation. Note that when donating taxable property that you have held for one year or less, your itemized deduction is limited to the basis of the property, which is just what you paid for it. You don't get the full fair market value. So in some cases, donating via QCDs will be preferable, while in other cases, donating appreciated securities will be preferable. An important factor here is how much the taxable assets have appreciated. If it has gone up by, say, 10% since you bought it, then getting to avoid taxation on the 10% gain isn't such a big deal. However, it is now worth 10 times what you paid for it. Avoiding taxation on that gain via donating the asset could be a very big deal. Right? Yeah, I, if you've been holding the stock for your lifetime, it might be better to donate that for some people. Right, exactly. Yeah, if you held, like... Uh, let's say Procter and Gamble or GE for 40 years and you have this massive embedded gain, then yeah, yeah. You know, you don't want to pay the tax man and donate it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then he gets into which taxable assets to give. And he says, with regard to donating taxable assets, donating appreciated assets that you have owned for longer than one year is strictly better than donating other taxable account dollars. For example, cash in a checking account. And again, that's because you do not have to pay tax on the appreciation while still getting to claim an itemized deduction for the current market value of the assets. For example, imagine that you have a holding with $10,000 market value and $6,000 cost basis, which means you have a $4,000 unrealized gain. And you have held the asset for longer than a year. If you donate the asset, you get an itemized deduction for $10,000. Conversely, if you were to donate $10,000 of cash, you would also get an itemized deduction for $10,000. But donating the 10,000 means giving up 10,000 of spendable value, whereas donating the 10,000 appreciated holding actually costs you somewhat less. Because if you were to sell it, you had to pay tax on that $4,000 gain, right? Yep. Um, so Mike wraps up this article here uh, by listing his overall priority of, of giving. So if... If you're older than 70 and a half, this is the order of giving uh, recommended by Mike. Number one is donating appreciated taxable assets with a holding period longer than one year or donating via QCDs, depending on the circumstances. Uh, number two is donating whichever of the two options above the donating taxable assets or QCDs was less preferable. Number three is donating taxable account cash, meaning checking accounts, saving accounts. Uh, number four, donating appreciated taxable assets that you have held for one year or less. Number five is donating Roth IRA dollars. And finally, number six is donating taxable assets where the current market value is less than your basis. But he does note, Nick, that this is a pretty bad option because your deduction is limited to the market value and you don't get to claim a loss for a decline mm -hmm. in value if you donate it. Yeah. Um, so it's almost better to sell the asset claim the loss and then donate the resulting cash right yeah um and then he outlines the same thing for someone who is not yet age 70 and a half and therefore ineligible for qcds uh, the order of preference would be donating appreciated taxable assets with a holding period of longer than one year number two donating account cash number three donating appreciated taxable assets that you've held for less than one year Number four, donating Roth IRA or traditional IRA dollars. And number five, donating taxable assets where the current market value is less than your basis. The only other thing that I would add in here, Nick, that Mike didn't mention is looking into a donor advised fund. Um, another way to, again, donate highly appreciated stock, get the full tax deduction in the year that you donate it to the donor advised fund. Um, and then you can choose whenever you want to give that money to charity. So it's not like when you donate to the donor advised fund, you have to give that money to charity in that year. You can leave that money invested and have that grow for as long as you want and decide when you want to give that money to charity. Right. So you don't have to feel rushed to go do research on a good charity that you want to give to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so that's again, some, uh, verbiage on the most tax efficient way uh, to give. And again, that's probably the best article that I've read uh, in regards to mm -hmm. donating to charity. So yeah, that's a great one. Um, that's all I had, Nick. Anything else you want to leave with people before we wrap up for the week and head into 2022? 
No, that's that's everything for me. Thanks for having me, and happy holidays to all the listeners out there. Please be safe and enjoy enjoy the new year. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be back next week with episode number one thirty one. We hope everyone, like Nick says, uh, has a safe, happy new year. Um, and we'll be back next week with final twenty twenty one year end numbers for the markets uh, and some more good content for you all to digest. So uh, have a good weekend and happy new year. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.